I changed my major three times before oh, really? I landed on history. Oh, seriously? Yeah. I took 21 credits, like two and a half semesters straight just to get a degree in history. I've never used my degree for anything practical oh, in the real yeah. world. No. Yeah. yeah, I hear you. Know, you. What, I'm gonna do, what am I going to do, work at a library or a museum <laughs> or something? Like. <laughs> Welcome to How I Embraced the Suck, a podcast where you get to hear from veterans what life in the military is really like. I am your host, Walt, and before we start, you should know that I do not censor the show in any way. You have been warned. All right, so here we are with Danny. How's it going? Good, man. How you doing? Yeah. Great, great. Glad, uh, glad you hosted me for this and glad you could be on the on the podcast glad you could be here to too brother i'm glad you made the trip it's a little bit of a hike up from your neck of the woods but yeah i appreciate it yeah yeah i'm looking forward to it so give uh give me kind of a an overview of your your time in the military you're getting in time in getting out etc yeah so uh i i think i decided subconsciously to join the military when i was in fifth grade 9 11 you know like a lot of people yep, i think it yep. lit a fire in a lot of folks um i was obviously young and naive and didn't have a, a firm grasp on the reality of, of the world. Um, but I had that, you know, patriotism rah-rah fire that was lit pretty, sure. pretty young. Um, I'm one of five boys, so I'm the second oldest of five boys, and we were all in high school at the same time, so all very close in age. Oh, yeah, There's okay. twins in there. Yep. So just always a very uh, competitive, yep. rambunctious, violent household, despite not, my... Uh, not a low-T household. No, definitely not. Um despite my parents being like super, super Catholic. One mm-hmm. of my brothers is actually a priest. That's how Catholic my family is. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah. Anyway, um, my older brother enlisted in the Marine Corps in his junior year of high school. So he joined the, uh, the, the pool program where you sign up before mm-hmm. you're, you're eligible or old enough to go to boot camp, And, you know, you start going to weekly workouts and go to the local recruiter's office and get some PT, maybe some close order drill in, but it's just about prepping you for boot camp a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started going with him to those when I was a sophomore in, okay. in high school. And I knew I wanted to join the Marines because, you know, if he's doing it, I'm not, I'm not going to do something easier. You know, right. I'm going to do right. the hardest fucking yeah. thing because I can. Um, so, yeah, that kind of put me on that path. And then I took the ASVAB my junior year and started being pushed toward the officer route because I scored really mm. well uh-huh. on that. And... At that point, you know, it would have been 2008, um, I was I was in the, the position where I had to decide between, like, going to war, because the war in mm-hmm. Afghanistan and Iraq was sort of starting to wind down mm-hmm. at that point, um, or go the officer route, get college paid for, spend four years in the university while I'm doing all the officer training, right. um, and then get out to the fleet, you know, in 2013 and basically miss the war, Um so I, that was a tough decision for me. I knew, I think my parents had a lot of influence in, in helping mm. me choose the officer route, go to college sure. first, you know, sure. do all the training and it, it all worked out really well. Um, and I don't regret my decision now. I regret it for a long time, but yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I, uh, I applied for a four year scholarship for, uh, the reserve officer training corps for the Marine Corps and, uh, and got it. So it was like a $200,000 scholarship. So hmm. I didn't pay for college. I didn't pay for housing. Wow. Um, went to a Catholic university and, uh, 
lost my Catholicism there, <laughs> but that's a whole nother story. Um, huh. but yeah, I went through the officer training program in college, was commissioned in 2013 and, uh, went active duty as a Marine officer. So you, uh, you do a bunch of training. I don't know how deep you want to get into like that sort of time sure, in my life, sure. but there's a, a six month training period for all Marine officers. Once you're commissioned, you go to something called the basic school, mm-hmm. um, TBS is what sure. we call it. Sure. It's in Quantico, uh, Virginia. And it's a, a six month period where you are taught essentially how to be a platoon commander. So if you're, you know, commanding a 30 Marine unit in some sort of field environment, right. it was about half field work, half classroom. So you're just constantly taking tests and you're out in the field leading, you know, assault exercises and you right. know, setting up defensive positions and simulating battle. And it was, it, at the time it was annoying mm-hmm. and not fun. Right. But then, right. you know, afterwards, once you get out to the fleet and your real job starts, you look back on it pretty fondly. Right. Some of the guys that were in my fire team, my squad back then, like still, still pretty close. Sure. Um, so it was a pretty, pretty cool experience. Um, from the get go, like when I went to enlist in high school, all the way up through like toward the end of TBS, so we're talking like a six year period, I was pretty gung ho on being infantry. Like I wanted to be a ground okay. pounder. Yep. I wanted to, you know, be the, the tip of the spear kind of thing. No pogue life for you. No. <laughs> well, then I ended up being a pogue. So <laughs> it all kind of came full circle to that. Um, there was a lot of pressure from, you know, guys in my platoon at TBS that were like, dude, if you're capable of it, you have a responsibility to do it. Mm, because sure. there's, you know, there are a lot of guys that want to be an infantry officer, but they're just not, not everyone that joins them. The military is the, right. uh, is the, the nation's finest, you know what I mean? For sure. Um, so they were trying to make me feel like I had a duty to do it. And that's a fun sentence. And I just, I kind of had a, a point where I was like, you know, maybe I don't want to do this for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And if I don't, what am I going to be ready for? Like what, what sort of job am I going to fall into after four or eight years of mm-hmm. being an infantry officer? Like what skills translate sure. where I can make a case for someone to hire me for good money? So I'd started caring about investing in, in money at that point, and mm-hmm. I was ready to set up my future. Um, so I just had a, a kind of soul-searching heart-to-heart with myself and decided to to be a pogue and, and find another MOS, a mission yeah. occupation specialty, a job that would set me up better for the future. Right. right. Um, I felt like a pussy when I did it. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. that's kind of the indoctrination. That's the that's how you're you're trained. Like, if you're not an infantry guy you're right. You're full of shit. Like you're just, you're not a real Marine, you right. know? <laughs> right. But, uh, I ended up going aviation maintenance officer. Um, so I was managing maintenance departments of anywhere from a hundred to 250 Marines for light attack helicopters. And then the last couple of years was drones. So hmm. it was a, a whirlwind, crazy experience. Um, did a couple of quote unquote deployments to the Northern territories of Australia um, a couple smaller detachments to various areas in the South Pacific. Okay. Um, but it was mostly training exercises. So never got shot at, nothing like that. I was, sure. a, I was a pogue through and through. I was, yeah. <laughs> I was managing our, our Marines that were um, ensuring we had the aircraft to support the ground forces sure. to you know, meet our daily, weekly, quarterly, annual mission requirements. So, And it was a great, great experience in, in prepping me for pretty much any any sort of corporate job getting out of the military mm-hmm. a lot of organizational skills a lot of visibility okay. you know i was answering to lieutenant colonels and colonels 
like right away as a second lieutenant, having to report to them on the readiness of our 26 aircraft. Okay, sure. Right out of the gate. And I'm this little second lieutenant who's used to talking to like captains. And all of a sudden I'm in front of this crusty old guy who's just judging me, you know? Yeah, and I'm of like, course. <laughs> uh, aircraft 26 is down because of a, a busted servo. And they're like, well, why didn't you order a new one? Well, I did, sir, but it's back order. He's like, well, did you order the right part number? I'm like, I don't fucking know because I'm a second lieutenant. Yeah. I don't know anything. <laughs> it was a lot of that for a couple of years before I was comfortable in my job. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it was a fun experience. Got me comfortable in the spotlight, though. So if someone's going to call me out or, you know, if I'm talking to the CEO of a company, like I sold to a lot of sure. C-suite folks afterwards, um, got me very comfortable just sort of being under that scrutinous gaze of right. someone who's supposedly far above my station. Um, but yeah, it was, it, it sucked in the moment. Um, but it was, it was a very, very productive experience for me, mm-hmm. setting me up for the rest of my life. So. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the pool E program, is that, is that kind of like ROTC for enlisted vaguely? Um, not, not so much. ROTC is more about, I'm not sure what uh, what ROTC in high school is like. I never did any okay. of that stuff. But okay. in college, ROTC kind of becomes like say you're in a varsity sport, and they okay. they're dictating a lot of your day. You know, so you're waking up at 4:30 and you're going to physical training or drill every morning, and then you're going sure. to class all day, and then you have um, you know ROTC garbage you have to do in the afternoons. Um, whether it's you know we had something that was called Semper Fi Society where you'd be teaching uh, land navigation tactics and, you know, going over old war novels or just military tactics. And mm-hmm. It was a large chunk of your day that was given over to this this, sure. this program, which is fair because it was, for a lot of us, a full-ride scholarship. Right. So you, you right. know, you got you to gotta earn it. And it's all about prepping you to be a, a good officer. Whereas the pool function in high school, it's really just, okay, this kid wants to sign on the dotted line. He wants to enlist and go to boot camp, but he hasn't graduated high school yet or she hasn't graduated sure. high school yet, or um, he's just not old enough yet. So you go into the pool E function, and you show up to the recruiter's office once a week and do PT, basically. You do okay. like a physical fitness test or maybe some other kind of workout um, with the recruiter and with the other poolies that are signed up. And it's just all about prepping you, mostly physically, um, tiny bit mentally for boot camp. Okay. Um, which is, you know, boot, boot camp is a whole nother... I didn't go through enlisted boot camp. Right. Um, I have a lot of friends who did, though. And I went through the officer version, which is officer candidate school. And, you know, if you're joining the Marine Corps, or generally from, from some of my other friends, from any other branch, as long as you're in shape, mm-hmm. and as long as you're not trying to make a target of yourself, or like be in the limelight, mm, sure. you're going to be fine. Sure. You know, it's not that hard. It's going to suck for 13 weeks, but... If you just shut the fuck up and do what you're told for 13 weeks, you're going to pass. Yeah. yeah. And it's going to be fine. Try to not so, be noticed. Exactly. So the Pooley program was just about prepping you mostly physically for that, um, getting you in shape so you could get your, you know, at least 15 pull-ups and score pretty well. Right. So there were a good number of, uh, we called them fat bodies, who right. wanted to join, but they couldn't pass the minimum requirements. So, yeah. Hmm. So if if a kid you know, an 18 year old or something came up to you and said, Hey, you were in the military. Super cool. I want to join. What, what would your, what would your advice be to them? Yeah. Um, number one is that 
the military can be a, a really, really great route that sets you up well for the rest mm-hmm. of your life, for sure. Um, I'd, I'd like to think I'm a good example of that. Like I've done pretty well. Um, coming out as a, as a captain, you know, at age 27, as an 03, the third mm-hmm. of the officer ranks with no debt, um, I used my experience and my government-paid education to position myself for a very well-paid job in corporate software sales. Sure. And I've been able to position myself for the kind of life that I want to live. So it can absolutely work for a lot of people. Um, And if you enlist as well, if you go the enlisted route, you still get the GI Bill, so they pay for your education. I would, as a caveat to that, though, just say you need to make sure your reasons for joining are, are sound. Okay. But they're good reasons. If it's like 90% rah-rah patriotism related, um, I don't know, go read shit like War is a Racket by mm-hmm. Smedley Butler, the okay. legendary Marine Corps general. Um, just talking about the, the, the economic benefit of warfare and you know, try to, try to really get a handle on how does the military-industrial complex truly work? Sure. Because you don't want to go in blind with this perception that America is the greatest country in the world. It may be debated mm-hmm. in some ways. Sure. Um, but if you go in just thinking like, I need to serve my country. I need to be a hero. I want to do this. I want to do that. I mean, you're, you're, you're probably going to be disappointed. Okay. Yeah. So point. your motivation could evaporate yes. once you hit the wall of reality. Exactly. Okay. So there is that. Um, I guess number two, the other thing I would say is that if you're going to join, join the air force. <laughs> 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 you know, best quality of life. You got the best gear, best chow, uh, benefits, best in general, best, you know, post service career, um, right. relatability, just being able to translate your skills. You're going to hate your life a lot less. Sure. If you join yeah. the Air Force, <laughs> I'm sure their, uh, their, their requirements, you know, their eligibility requirements are a little more stringent than they used to be. Okay. Like when I joined, when I enlisted or when I went to enlist in 2008, it wasn't hard, man. They were taking sure anyone with a pulse that could, you know, do a few pull-ups. Um, whereas nowadays, peacetime military, little yep. higher requirements, yep. which is a uh, little, little backwards in my opinion. But yeah. anyway, yeah, join the Air Force. If you're going to join the military, just if it's all about trying to, to be or, or be perceived as a badass, mm-hmm. you're a fucking idiot. Like right. <laughs> don't right. waste your time. Yeah, yeah. Like being a Marine isn't going to make you a badass. You know, right. it'll, it'll probably make you a little more arrogant. Um, it'll make it a little less likely that people want to be around you. Yes. <laughs> um, it'll give you an excuse to be the same dipshit you are now. <laughs> right, right. But so, because of the uniform, it, it, it exactly allows it. It's yeah. a free pass, essentially. <clears throat> it's expected that you're a hard-headed asshole. Right, right, exactly. Yep. Yeah. But gotta, if, gotta you know, the brand. if you want to challenge yourself, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally in a lot of ways, then Marine Corps can be the right route for sure. It's just, you're going to deal with a lot more bullshit, you know, a lot Mm. more indoctrination, a lot more institutionalized kind of tradition. And if, if that's your, if that's your thing, cool, like go for it. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm proud to be a Marine in some ways in other ways, not so much. Um, but if I were to do it again, Air Force would have made the last, you know, 10 years of my life a little, a little more enjoyable, sure. I would say, yeah, yeah. for sure. Less sleeping in the mud. Yeah. And, and Which I was, a little more AC. I was, I was fine with that part, honestly. I, I, I like the austere 
stuff, but there was, there, there's just a lot of inefficiencies when mm. you're a department of the Navy and right. the budget reflects that, you yep. know, when you're trying to get parts for your aircraft to keep them from falling out of the sky so that your pilots can keep their quals. And that's right. the only reason you're fucking flying, but the airframes themselves are, you know, 20, 30 years old and you're having mishaps every month and people are dying. You start to mm. reflect on, okay, what the fuck are we doing? Like what? Right. What are we doing here? <laughs> yeah, and consider that the the need to stay qualified as a pilot is yeah. is even separate is even separate from your missions. It's mission pretty flight. much yeah. It's pretty much what our our mission um, requirements are built off of when we're in peacetime. Okay. Uh, like most sure. of the time when I was stationed in Hawaii, that's that's how they built the daily flight schedule. It was okay. Well, guys need to you know stay up on which quals and okay, we need to fly two sorties to make sure these guys get you know their night rating again and all this other garbage and. You're sitting there with like four planes that are actually right. flyable that are safe for flight. The rest of them are like partially mission capable PMC or just down. Sure. And you're like, great, we're gonna fly all four of them and break two of them, and then tomorrow we're gonna be fucked. And yeah. That was that was pretty much every day uh, for like four years. Sure. Sure. Wow. So. So you you were handling all that. You were you were responsible for, um, I think you mentioned uh, helicopters and then also drones, but a, a whole. A whole squadron or mm-hmm. more than, were you over, what were you over? Uh, maintenance department. An, an entire squadron? Um, yeah, so an entire squadron, the maintenance department. So okay. the, the drones came later. That was a separate squadron. Okay. Um, I, typically how it works in my specific MOS, my, my job of aviation maintenance officer, is you will do one tour as the um, you know maintenance officer for a flying squadron on the flight line. So mm-hmm. that's, for me, it was light attack helicopters. Maybe it's... Um, CH-53s, shitters as we call them, the slightly larger helicopters that leak hide oil all over, so we call them shitters, Um, or the Ospreys, the V-22s. And then after doing, you know, two years of that, of just the worst part of our career progression, because it's, you're putting out fires every day. Right. And you're answering to multiple colonels, like not just yours, but also there's what's called a a MALS, Marine Air Logistics Squadron. Okay. That's sort of across the street or somewhere on base near you, but their whole purpose in life is to support the flight lines. But they report up to the mag, okay, to the you know to the general, and you are you're responsible for reporting in both to your CO to ensure your mission requirements as a squadron are being met, that you have enough aircraft to fly those sure. missions. But then also, you're reporting up through the colonel over at the mag, um, and the the mals because they have to report up their chain of command to tell the general, like, hey, here's, you know, where we're at for aircraft readiness and, you know, the supply sure. system and, and, you know, hmm, parts availability. And so sometimes those two things can conflict, those two chains of command. Um, so choosing between that as a young second lieutenant who's still trying to figure out yes. his job, yeah, that's always fun. Um, but yeah, you, typically you do that job, hating your life, running around like a chicken with your head cut off for two years, and then they switch you over to the mouse across the street to that logistic okay. squadron that's supporting okay. the flying squadrons. And that is the cush job. That's the, you're chilling. You've got a shop of maybe 30 Marines. Ours was actually mixed Marines and sailors. Okay. Navy and Marines. Um, so it was even more chill because <laughs> it, it broke that like strict Marine Corps yes. kind of environment. Yep. Um, so I was really looking forward to that after two years of light attack helicopter shit. 
which is kind of notoriously one of the crappier assignments because there's two type model series, Yankees and Cobras. Uh huh. So you're dealing with two different aircraft with different parts availability and, you know, different mission requirements and mission capabilities. This is a little more complex. Sure. Um, but, you know, I came back from my second deployment in Australia with the helicopters and I was supposed to report over to the MALS, the, the logistic squadron, the, the nice cushy job. And the, uh, the major over there was like, don't unpack. You're going across the street to the drone squadron. They just failed their, uh, their inspection their Um, it's a wing inspection. Mm-hmm. They come by and make sure all of your programs are on track and you're doing everything properly. Right. So we need you to go over there and overhaul their, their maintenance programs. <laughs> so great. I went, you know, out, out of the, out of the kettle into the frying pan or whatever. Yeah. So I, I my entire, um, fleet experience was uh, at flying squadrons. I never got that, that break. I got out as a captain and I left the drone squadron and went right. to the civilian world. So <laughs> maybe I would have stayed in if I got a taste of that, that, that cush life. Um, but honestly, probably not at that point. I was, I was a little jaded, a little over it. And I had mm-hmm. met my, I had met my now wife at that time mm. and I didn't want to, you had other goals. Yeah, man. I didn't want to leave her for six months because both of my deployments were drop of a hat. You know, you, you have three days to oh, pack wow. or to, you know, sure. get out of your apartment lease and then you're leaving for six months. And I had, because I was filling in for someone that couldn't make it both times. Gotcha. So I didn't have much. I was like, I'm not going to go through this again if I have a wife or, you know, a fiance or whatever. And, you know, eventually kids. So yeah. I knew that as soon as my, my time in Hawaii was up, that they were going to probably send me to the East Coast on some bullshit B-billet is what it's called. Mm-hmm. You go do something that's not related to your specific job, like right. recruiter or maybe a, the captain at an ROTC, a university or whatever. I was like, I don't want to do any of that shit. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to get out, try my hand at, at the civilian world. Right. See what happens. And it's worked out pretty well. Um, but like I said, you know, that experience as, as much as I liked to gripe in the moment about it, it, it taught me a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't a super organized person beforehand. Okay. I was, yeah. I don't want to say naturally intelligent, but like tests were always easy for me. I did really right. well in high school without studying did pretty well in college without studying. Um, but that experience was a slap in the face that like, you can't, you can't just get by without being prepared for shit. Right. You're going to have to figure out how to get organized. You know how to, if you're answering to, to a bunch of sort of higher up folks on a daily basis, you need to know things like inside and out as well as all your enlisted Marines do mm-hmm. not necessarily like how to fix the aircraft. Cause that's not my job. Um, I'm a pogue and also not a mechanic. Right, <laughs> like, right. I'm that fucking, yeah, I, I warmed a desk and, and ran reports and Excel, Excel spreadsheets. And uh, yeah, it was nonstop. Huh. That kind of admin shit. Um, but it prepared me really well for the corporate world because that's, that's all a sales job is. Really, right. it's being organized. It's talking to the right people. It's, it's being prepared. Sure. And if you can figure out how to be prepared... You know, whether you're, you're talking about your job, your career, uh, your family life, being ready for shit to go down. You know, I'm not a prepper or anything, but just, you know, I think everyone right. has a personal responsibility. Sure. Just be ready for whatever, you know, not talking just catastrophe. If there's a hurricane or if it's, you know, you lose your job, what are you going to do? Do you have an emergency fund set up? Right. You know, like yep. that, that job got me sort of thinking that way about everything. Hmm. And okay. I started 
focusing more on being prepared, which, yeah, has, has worked out really well for me. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Sorry, I kind of went off on a tangent there. But. No, no, no. That For sure. I mean, that's a good viewpoint. Um, probably not everybody. Some people um, in the military, they're all organized, and then they get out, and they it was the external structure mm. that gave them that, and they just become lazy or slobs or whatever. So seeing that, how you took it and then built off of it, used it to improve your life, I think that's... That's good to to hear. So w- that um, kind of answers that a look to a certain extent answers the question. But how how would you say the military affected your outlook on life in general? Um, your time in the military, um, I guess, like that did answer a lot of that. Yeah, there. I think there's probably but, a couple other mm-hmm. a couple other moments Facets. I can touch on, maybe. Um, like I said, I was a pogue, you know, no one was shooting at me. I didn't have any, any crazy combat experiences that changed my outlook. Um, had a lot of friends die from, from aircraft mishaps. Mm. So that, on the line or out, out flying. flying? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Well, I mean, when you're flying old ass equipment and your supply right. system shot and you're the one that, you know, is dealing with those supply constraints and trying to get the birds up and then you know, aircraft are flying out of the sky almost, it seemed like on a monthly basis for a while there. Hmm. Um, you know, losing 22 guys anywhere from close friends to just acquaintances, guys sure, I had deployed sure. with or whatever. That that affects your outlook pretty early on because um, hmm. it gets you, it gets you kind of pissed off. You yeah, know? for sure. Because then it's visceral, then it's real. It's like, okay, people are dying and we're just doing training exercises. These guys aren't getting shot out of the sky. These are just either uh, mechanical malfunctions, um, a lot of the times weather's involved. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe someone made the wrong call to actually fly that mission when the conditions probably, you shouldn't be out in that kind of shit. Right. Um, so you start to question a lot of things hmm. about what is it we're doing here? What's the real value? What's the ROI? Um, and why are people dying regularly? So that hits you. That's pretty impactful. From early on and that that was probably had some influence in my decision to get out so that that definitely you know you asked what impacted my my outlook it, it, it lets you it helps you understand that life is short and precious and you should enjoy it every mm-hmm. moment of it while you can with the people you love um i've always kind of embraced that ever since you know i started losing people so hmm. um the other thing is probably the the responsibility piece that I mentioned, you know, from mm-hmm. talking yeah. age 24 as a brand new officer, second lieutenant, doesn't know shit. Like, yeah, there's a bunch of training, but it doesn't prepare you for your actual job. It's mostly OJT on the job training. Um, so answering to those people, like you said, I already hit on it, but getting me comfortable being uncomfortable in yeah. professional situations. Yeah. And, and still pushing through it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but the other thing that I really liked about the, the military, I guess, um, structure of how our chain of commands worked and how our different assignments worked was that I got to work under a lot of different people, um, Mm. from like, I had a few different, uh, majors over me in the squadron life, um, in that environment. 
while I was at that one squadron. Like they would cycle in and out because it was sort of a temporary assignment okay, for them. Sure. So I got that. I also had leadership over at the mouths, the you know the colonels that I would report to, the majors over there. Um, so I got to to see a lot of different styles of leadership, styles of mm-hmm. management. Yeah. You know how these guys decided to to lead and to influence and to you know get shit done. Um, so that was a really, really great experience for a young, you know, 24 year old who was a brand new officer. I got to say like, I like how this guy does this. I like how he takes care of his guys. Really don't like how this guy does X, Y, Z. And I could just kind of try on different hats and, and, and take or hmm. discard things from different people and kind of build up my own idea of, you know, what does it mean to, to be a leader sure. and to be a manager? Um, so that was great. I mean, I super valuable for a young sort of uh, supple mind that was right. ready to grow. So since you got out, have you stayed in touch with any of those, the command that you were under? Have you ran across them in civilian life or, or in your civilian life? Um, there's, there's one guy, the, uh, the CEO, the Lieutenant Colonel I worked for at the drone squadron. Mm-hmm. Um, he went on to write a book actually. Um, there was a, there was a, there was a book by Lieutenant Colonel Lex, is it Lex Grossman? Lieutenant Colonel Grossman oh, I, yeah. wrote a book called On Killing. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe 20 years ago, I mm-hmm. think. It was okay. a while back. Um, I actually wrote my senior thesis, history thesis on, you know, most of the information from my thesis came from his book. Um, but my my former CO, um, Lieutenant Colonel Wayne Phelps, he wrote a book called On Killing Remotely uh, with Lieutenant Colonel Grossman. Oh. So they did a collab and he authored this book and it just came out. Because couple, of his experience ago. with drones and stuff. Yep. yep. Okay. Um so yeah, I, I've kind of kept in touch with him a little bit. Uh, not not a hell of a lot, but all the other guys, I, and most of them stayed in. He got out and started writing. Um, he's done really well with that. Hmm. Uh, really happy to see the success he's been having. Um, but yeah, the other guys, not not really. They've been pretty busy. A lot of deployments, a lot of their own thing. Yeah, it's, just it'd be interesting to how the dynamic changes when you're a captain or whatever reporting, and then you come to him and you're just you got a beard and long hair and they're still in, you know, I, that's kind of that, the way it would adjust. There's still that respect, obviously. Yeah. But yeah, not the, the commitment. Sure. To be under. Yeah. Them. There's definitely the respect piece, but you know, I, I just, I respect people. You know, I don't okay, care if sure. you were a Lieutenant Colonel or if you were a Lance Corporal, you know, like I, I'm going to talk to you like a person and that's how I've always decided to do things. Mm-hmm. Even when I was in. Um, so I think, I don't want to say I had a cheat code or anything, but I feel like I connected with a lot of the the higher level officers. Okay. Because I was, it, it was a frequency thing. I was always in their office reporting mm-hmm. on our, our mission capabilities, our, our aircraft readiness. Um, so from early on, I was able to just straddle that line of being respectful, but also just kind of developing relationships with them. Okay. But there's also the military, you know, you mentioned if we stay in touch, it's like there's the military aspect of, there's guys I went through training with, you know, eight years ago, I could call up and we could hang out or like plan a trip or something. Right. We haven't spoken right. in years, you know? So but there's because that, of that common bond. Yeah. There's that element too. Huh. So yeah, that's one thing, even a lot of people that when they go in, when they're going in, they say the camaraderie of it really, really grabs them. And I can, I can see that, you know, the, the shared, the shared hardship. Um, and then having gone through that, as you say, even eight years later or whatever, you can, you can call back to that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I, I don't want to say I was like unique or an enigma or anything, but I didn't really hang out with a lot of the guys I worked with outside of okay, work sure. 
when we were deployed, obviously, like, you know, you're with them the whole time. But like, especially once I met my wife in Hawaii, like we had our own little tribe out there. Right. And yep. I would, as soon yep. as I would, I was done with work, I would disassociate and just go be with them and right. not be that military person. So it was kind of a light switch for me. Mm-hmm. Um, the camaraderie at work, yeah, that, that was cool. But I was, I was also able to find that sort of, you know, not as strongly once I got out. Um, but I worked remotely for three years after I got out of the military. So it's okay. harder to build that kind of office camaraderie when right. you're working from home. True. But I loved it. <laughs> I, I loved working from home and just traveling for work and not having to go into an office every day. It saves so much time. Oh yeah. Um, but the camaraderie piece, like, yeah, it, there's still this, this like subversive sort of idea that, okay, we can have a conversation. I want to get your input. If let's say if you're my, my staff sergeant or my gunny or whoever mm-hmm. I'm working with, but I'm the officer. So I'm going to make the decision. Right. It was always that. So you could only get so close sure. with, with, the enlisted guys and I, I tried not to worry too much about like, oh, I'm an officer, and you know, well, fuck that, like, <laughs> right, right. I'd rather you call me by my first name, you know. But okay, here's here's the the rules, you know, the the sort of boundaries we have to live within. Sure. But it, yeah, that a lot of it felt forced and not uncomfortable. But when you're a brand new second lieutenant who. Mm-hmm as we like to say, doesn't know shit about fuck. Right. <laughs> That's how we put right. it. Like, you know nothing. And you're leaning on your staff sergeants, your gunnies, and your master guns, or your master sergeants for pretty much everything right. on a daily basis. And they know that. And over, you know they know that. Yeah, man. For like <laughs> over a year, you're like, I'm not capable of making decisions by myself. I need lots of input. So coming into that, that's always an interesting dynamic mm-hmm. as a young officer. Yeah. Trying to figure out the balance between like, okay, yeah, I, I need to be in charge. I need to start, I need to make decisions that are good for the squadron. Keep the big picture in mind. Um, treat my guys well, not piss off the wrong people, um, but defend my people and and not cross certain professional lines at the same time. Mm, sure. Especially when you're deployed, you know, everybody's drinking together when you can. Yep. yep. Um, especially, you know, if you're in Australia, I say deployment in quotes, because like if you're not down in the desert, you're up in Darwin, the right. northernmost city in Australia, and then you can, you know, hit up the bars, you know, right, once or right. twice a month kind of thing. So it's really easy to slip past those lines when you see your Marines out <laughs> partying and whatnot. Right. Um, but I don't know, man. There's just like an unspoken. If everybody can keep it together and when you're at work, you're professional and you're not crossing any crazy, you know, there are certain things that are not allowed per the UCMJ, but I don't know. It, it Sure. It's not too hard to straddle that. It's just the uppity fucking people that want to play by the book and that had no friends growing up that want to like yep. get on you for like, hey, you're not supposed to be, you know, drinking with them or like having like, man, why don't you fuck off and mind your business? Right. Like, these are my Marines. <laughs> right. So whatever. Huh. So anyway, that, another segue. I don't even remember what you initially asked me about. Yeah. But. No, no, no. Yeah. That, <clears throat> excuse me. That the the personal aspect of the background and everything that that's really um, insightful because it's not just, it's not just a history book. It's not just, you know, this dry, dry experience, but to hear, you know, you lived it, you saw it. Um, that's, it gives, it gives it a lot more meaning, I think. And, and obviously a lot more interest Yeah, to hear, hear 
that. Yeah, I think there's a lot of perceptions out there about military members and veterans just being, you know, robots, killing machines, that kind of thing. Sure, and sure. It's like, man, it's for the vast majority of people, it's just another job. You know, maybe you join for different, you join for your own reasons, sure, but mm-hmm. like really, you're going to work every day, you're bitching about things in the smoke pit, you're just, right. you're doing right. your job and trying to have a good time when you can, like pretty much any other job sure. in the world. Like you're just trying not to hate your life. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it can be a very, uh, it can be a cynical environment. That's probably something mm-hmm. I could have mentioned, um, on the life outlook question. Right. I've always been kind of outwardly social, you know, and, and mm-hmm. not political, but like I get along with everyone sure. for the most yeah, part. Yeah. But the Marine Corps kind of gave me an excuse to lean into my my underlying cynicism. I've always right. been like a more realist, cynical person down down deep. And the Marine Corps is just like <laughs> if you if you lean into it, it'll it'll welcome <laughs> it'll, you with open yeah. arms because. It's an incredibly salty branch of the yeah, military. Yeah, for sure. Everyone's pissed off all the time. Um, there are exceptions. There are those. There are those few guys that are just like beacons of hope when you go in sure. to your barracks or squadron office or whatever, and they're always smiling and cracking jokes. And it's like, okay, this this environment functions because of those few people that, that right? You know, yeah. someone cracks a joke, and it's like you could be in the worst situation on earth, but you're going through it together. So it's then it turns into a funny moment that you look back on with uh, with sort of a positive light. Yeah, I've I've thought it'd be cool or it'd be it'd be yeah, it'd be cool to see a war movie and they're in the middle of a firefight and then all of a sudden one of the guys he just like, "Oh, I lost the game." You know, and then and just he's in the middle of a firefight, but he's relaxed enough to just make a cultural reference. <laughs> You know, and then and in the movie that'd be it might not happen in real life. But I feel in the like movie, that'd Generation be cool. Kill probably has a few moments like that. Yeah, if I think back. Yeah, and actually, I was gonna mention um, partly that your your view on that, and then also the book um, by Fit, Nathaniel Fick, the, the one bullet away. There. Yeah, one bullet yeah. away. Kind of what? <clears throat> obviously, you weren't in combat, but being in military in the Marines, especially. Um, what what is your kind of viewpoint on that the realism and then also just um the i guess mostly the realism of it what what did you think about that yeah so generation kill i think it's it's so well received and so loved by the marine corps in general because mm-hmm. they they kind of got it right you know in terms of what a deployed company of marines is going to act like sure it, just the 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 humor and the very uh, i don't i'm not sure what the right word is it's extremely vulgar it's extremely you know you're just you're coping with dark humor all the time dark humor man yeah. just always and i love it man it's 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 refreshing that they tell a story that isn't just hollywood's version of you know warfare right. and right. bullshit right john wayne and rambo and, or yeah something. just you know carrying the flag as you charge into battle kind of thing Usually you're, you know, it's, it's been recounted many times, but it's, you know, 99% sheer boredom and 1% terror right. or just insanity or chaos. Sure. Um, so Generation Kill, I think does a really great job. One Bullet Away, uh, I read that book when I was either a very, very young officer, like recently commissioned or like not even an officer yet when I was still in training. So I was extremely young and naive 
back then, I think like all folks in college are. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting a lot of, of good sort of insight out of it. Obviously it's been a while since I've read it. Um, but I remember the, the story that, that Fick tells and, and how he sort of built up his platoon, um, and how he treated his people and how he made sure they were ready in the event of you know, his passing or if he was ready in the event of his boss you know, sure. getting shot. That's the whole concept of one bullet away. Like you're one bullet away from being like from your, your staff Promoted sergeant taking over or, yeah. or you taking over a company. Um, mm. so it was kind of a, it was a bit of a wake up call. I think is for, for me, I romanticized a lot of, uh, what I thought the Marine Corps would be. And I mm. think a lot of people do okay. when they're signing the dotted line or even, you know, through college, you're in fucking college, you're in that environment, you're going through the officer training, but you still have this perception of what fleet life is going to be like. Sure. So you read yep. something like that and you're like, okay, yeah, this is, you know, this is more real. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say I saw some, some backlash or something from guys he had maybe served with about some of the stories he told. So that may have soured the book a little bit, but mm-hmm. I do remember getting a lot of really good insight as a young officer mm-hmm. from that. So yeah, I, I think I would still probably recommend it. I need to reread it. It's about, about time for that. Yeah. I, between the two books, Generation Kill and One Bullet Away, I appreciated the insight into the interaction between, as you were talking about earlier, between officer and enlisted. And then that there's kind of a dichotomy, but also, um, it's a, it is mutually supportive relationship, but there's also a mutual like, uh, aggression or, or distrust, I guess. (laughs) Yes. So, so most, most of the, um, experience I have with uh, military veterans is enlisted. So obviously hearing the, you know, it's really easy to agree with that viewpoint of officers are terrible. They're all jerks. They hate us and none of them care about us. But to hear, you know, the reality where, where that might, there's, I'm sure there's cases of that, um, where the officer is in his mind is sole importance and his career, but to hear, you know, you, and then also like you mentioned, Fick, um, having a, a, a real, a genuine desire for their, uh, troops, their soldiers or Marines in this case. So is, do you think that, that interest decreases as rank grows in, in your, in your observation or, um, yeah, I, I get what you're, what you're getting yeah. at here. Yeah. I mean, um, I'm not trying to be political or anything, but like legitimately, like as you get further in rank, is it, it do the troops matter less you think, or is it just, you've got so many other responsibilities? Totally, man. Yeah. It's uh, it's something I was just talking to my former boss, um, in, in my sales life, my, my former mm-hmm. boss was an army ranger officer. Um, we just had this conversation about, oh, about okay. how sales and military life relates in terms of as you progress in rank, you lose sight of what it's like to be the little guy very quickly. Mm, okay. You know, like he promoted up from uh, sales executive to sales director. So then he had people over him and within weeks he, he felt himself losing like, Oh, I forgot how hard it was to do these things. I'm asking these guys to do that. I'm right. like, just fucking do it. Cause we need to hit, you know, you're thinking the big picture. Right. So absolutely. That's a real thing. It's a real psychological phenomenon. Mm. I think as soon as you promote up, you instantly are only thinking about like, okay, this new role, I'm forced to look at the bigger picture. I'm forced to look at some larger, um, you know, it would be KPIs in the business world or just, you know, mission requirements in the, in the military world. And you don't really have a choice, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think the guys that can actually reroute themselves on a regular basis back down to like, 
I have the, the EQ, the, the empathy to say, how does this affect my guys mm. and gals when I make sure. this decision? Kind you of know? see it through their eyes. Yeah. It's, it, it's totally real. Yeah. And it's a valid, it's a very good question because it's, and that, it, it's not just military either. It's we, my former boss and I started talking about it because it was happening with one of our VPs in the civilian world. Mm, sure. And that guy wasn't military or anything, but you know, you can be the star sales executive and work your way up in the company. And then you're an asshole. Right. Cause you don't know how to lead people. What, what's the saying? You get promoted to your, to your level of, uh, is it inefficiency yeah. or something? You get <laughs> so, promoted to your, your failure point essentially. Yep. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Well, I was kind of thinking about that when you were talking about, um, your normal progression would have been two years on the flight line mm-hmm. and then moving to, um, M M A G M L G something like uh, that. The mouse. Yep. There we go. Um, the, the value to that, I don't know if it was intended or not that I could see is net once you're in mouths, you've been there. Like, you know, the day to day grind thousand sure, percent you're yep. enjoying the posh office, but also to a certain extent you can relate back. Yes. Like, you probably lose that as you're saying, you lose that quickly. Um, yeah, you're, you're totally right about that. I mean, most people in the, the squadron or, you know, just there on base don't understand that dynamic, like why they have people cycle around. So mm, you hit the nail on the head. Sure. That's exactly why. Because, you know, if you're at the, the logistics squadron, the MALS, and they're, they're, there's some sort of uh, uh, order request for a part, like the MALS had, I don't want to get too far into it, but there's uh, S-level shops or or S level squadrons sure. or flying squadrons. And there's the I level where they can, they can fabricate things that you can't necessarily do on the flight line. Okay. They have, you know, milling shops and shit where they can, you know, fix things you couldn't do in a flying squadron. You're supporting those guys for whatever they need. You know, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe you have a, a cache of parts or you can get something fixed for them, but they're going to submit a request. And typically you look at that request. If you're an enlisted guy over at the mouse and you say, eh, I'll get to it tomorrow. Or like, I have this other workload or whatever. But if you had served like in a squadron, in a flying squadron before, and then exactly like you said, you come over to the eye level, to the mouse, mm-hmm. you understand the urgency. You understand that these people need this, like ASAP is thrown around a lot, every order. You know oh yeah, I mean? of course. It's urgent. <laughs> I need this ASAP. But like, you get it. Once you've been over there and you've lived that life for a couple of years, if you mm-hmm. come over to the eye level, like everybody's going to, especially in Hawaii, it's super far from the flagpole that aloha culture is real. Yep. yep. Um, they'll be like, chill out, man. Like, what are you fucking, what are you so uptight about? And you're like, no, nah, man, these guys, like, I don't think you understand what they're going through over there. Um, right. So even that just dissociating from your fellow Marines who are experiencing something else across the street is, yeah, it's so easy to forget what life was like before. Once you move into some new digs, you know? Huh? So empathy, man, life yeah. is about, Life is about empathy. Yeah. So, um, you mentioned generation kill. Uh, you saw this, you saw the show, mm-hmm. right? The HBO when been a while. If you, yeah. yeah. Okay. So it's been a while. Maybe, maybe you won't remember this. Was there, um, was there a moment in there that as you were watching it, like maybe the whole thing spoke to you, but was there a particular moment you remember that just like, you're like, I was there. That was, that was me. There were, <sighs> I can't remember. I can't recall a specific okay. line sure. from the movie, but there were multiple instances where the uh, where the captain. I think he's they refer to him as Ice Man, or no? That's the that's oh, the, that's oh Staff Sergeant. Encino Man. Encino yeah. Man. Yes. <laughs> yeah. There were a lot of instances of banter between you know this the the junior enlisted or the NCOs and the uh-huh. officers and and 
and senior enlisted folks that were just like truly, you know, towing the line between right insubordination and sure. being funny, but like making a comment about that specific moment. Yeah, that's something else I've been meaning to rewatch. Um, sidebar: Have you heard of Vet TV? Uh, it's been popping up on Facebook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I, I watch. I'm like, oh yeah, okay. This seems pretty hilarious. It's it's legit too. It's it's uh, a la Generation Kill. It's they okay. do a very good sure. job in like getting all the dark humor and all mm-hmm. of the. They inject a lot more comedy, um, right? But they just take some of the most ridiculous situations that probably actually happened that are based on the the show runner, the, the, you know, the show creator's experiences sure. and just kind of extrapolate on them and turn them into skits or full shows that last seasons. Okay. Um, but there's a couple of them with the, the, you know, deployed group of Marines at some, uh, at some forward operating brace deployed that are just, it's just fucking hilarious. <laughs> it's extreme. It's very extreme. It's dark humor. Yeah. Um, but it's, yeah. If you but, like, but the reality Kill, of it is part of what makes it so funny. It's yeah, it's, Maybe a maybe lot of a lot of the vet TV episodes, reality. yeah, they yeah. they go they they exaggerate it quite a bit. Sure, um, you know, there's <laughs> there's scenes where the uh, I think he's a first lieutenant at the time, but the platoon commander is like collecting body parts of jihadis, you right. know, as war trophies and shit, <laughs> and they make these like comical s- scenarios, and it's it's like, dude, okay, maybe there's some sick fucks out there that have actually done that, but right. like, yeah, it, it might give civilians a an even worse impression. Of, uh, sure. of, of military members and veterans if they watch it. But if you're a vet or a military member, you'll, you'll get a real kick out sure. of it. Sure, sure. It's like 10 bucks a month or something, so I stopped paying for it, but I enjoyed it for a while. Yeah. Huh. Um, yeah, so so civilian perceptions, part of the impetus for this podcast is the um, this civilian world, I think something like 3% of the nation is currently serving in the military. And then obviously if you have veterans, it grows, but a lot of the civilian world has little to no contact with real, real military. You know, they watch movies, which normally is not accurate um, or see the news, which is slanted one way or the other. Usually Um, what do you, in your experience, what's what uh, civilian common perception would you say is most accurate? What, what, you know, it's like, oh yeah, you're talking to somebody and they're like, oh, well this happened. You're like, well, that's absolutely true. There, yeah, I'm going to come at it like we, we've talked about before, but I'm going to come at it from my specific experience because sure. trying to answer this question is a little hard because I have friends that have different, you know, all across the political spectrum coming from various backgrounds that all have different opinions on, you know, military sure. members and veterans. Um, so I, none of it really affects me too much because I don't, I don't portray myself as a veteran. Like that's not the first thing I say when I introduce myself mm-hmm. to someone. Um, but I think that when people find out I was a Marine, you know, a Marine officer, they're like, oh, you must be a hard charger, you, right, know, right. you know, do what it takes kind of person. And I, I think that's accurate. Like I'm going to do whatever is necessary to take mm. care of myself and my family. Sure. Um, but in terms of like what what else is accurate, man, there's just so many things across the board that are, you know, one person will think that, that Marines are baby killers and the next will think they're all, uh, you know, Marines are like the epitome of like a true, sure. you know, yeah. a war fighter. Out there with a sword killing and dragons. clean reputation and, you know, you have to be super in shape and super smart and, you know, all this. And dude, coming from like the air wing side of things, like, 
not all Marines are crazy in shape. You know, right. there's some, there's some fat bodies out there for sure. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the perceptions are, are mistaken in that way. Accurate wise. I, I don't know. I think there's, there's a certain amount of personal discipline you need to have mm. to be a Marine or sure. a special forces type guy or military in general. I like how I you just casually you, blended military and Marines and special forces. Yeah, right? like, it's it's basically like, yeah, the same it's, thing. It's really not. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't want to say air force. Cause it's like, man, yeah. you could, any nerd could fucking, right. which you should, right. if you're going to join, you should right. <laughs> go that route. But yeah, man, I don't know. I, I think there's, I think the, the civilian population gets a lot more wrong than they get right in terms of their perceptions. Mm, okay. Um, sure. Like the one that that just kind of irks me a little bit is that if you were in the military, that you must have been a ground pounder or you must have been, you know, infantry, you must mm. have been in combat. When in fact, 84% of the military is right. supporting roles, right. not combat arms. And the 16% that are combat arms, like nowadays, you know, even a smaller percentage of those guys are actually seeing combat. It's a, it's a peacetime right. military we're right. in right now. Um, and, and sadly, I think that some of the most vocal people about being a hard ass, about being a veteran, about, you know, they don't fall into that 16% mm. sure. of combat arms people. Um, generally, if you were a professional, if you mm-hmm. were a warrior, you're not really fucking talking about it, you know? Right. You're going right. on with your life. Um, also, being a veteran does not make you a subject matter expert or an authority on international policy or weapons handling or home and personal defense. Uh, Fuck man. A lot of guys like to lean on their experience or their like military background as if that makes them credible. When in fact, like bro, if you were like me, you sat at a fucking desk most of the time. Yep. You know, I shot more guns like outside of the military experience than I did like within it. I skipped the range. Like, for three years because I was too busy. Oh, you know, okay. my boss was like, no, you're not going. Cause we can't lose you for two weeks. Right. Cause there was always some exercise or some shit going on. So I had waivers for the range. Like, so, so every Marine a rifleman is not necessarily. Oh in God. Your experience no, isn't no, true. no, yeah. Okay. No. I mean, mm. everybody gets trained, I think a little better from the get go. Sure. Um, than sure. the other branches in terms of our standards for physical fitness, for, for marksmanship, um, but once you hit the fleet, man, like mission requirements are all that matter. And if you're not an infantry guy, if sure. you're in some kind of supporting role, that's going to take precedence. Um, sorry, someone's calling me from Georgia. I'm turn that off. My bad. That's bad etiquette. Um, and especially nowadays, man, I mentioned before, but like the military is not necessarily the nation's finest, mm-hmm. you know, like there's a lot of shitheads that join the military too, that kind of get through the cracks. And when that person happens to be an officer and like you hit on a little bit before when they're just looking out for their own career, that's when shit gets miserable for the guys underneath them. Mm. You know, it's, I've seen a few officers that you can, it's really apparent when they're making decisions that are just for advancing their own career. And those, those units, those squadrons, Mm -hmm. um, those companies tend to have some of the worst morale around because when there's there's always that sort of opposing forces or butting heads between enlisted and officers just naturally like you mentioned before yeah um 
but when you know that someone above you is acting as that shit filter from above, mm. you know, something comes yeah. down, but you, yep. you know, you know, as much shit that you and your captain may, you know, talk or like he makes you do things because you have to, like, it's just part of what's required. You know, he's got your back at the end right. of the day. Right. When that's gone, camaraderie goes out the fucking window. Hmm. You know, the morale of the unit goes out the window. Like you're not an effective fighting force. If your leader is only worried about himself. Sure. That does not make a leader. So, and there unfortunately are guys like that out there. Hmm. So not sure how we got on that or how I brought (laughs) us there, but yeah, not, not everybody's, uh, you know, cut clean, like, you know, that, that image of maybe that goes into the civilian perception. You know, if you're a Marine, Mm -hmm. you know, you're always very well put together and in shape and sure, you know, you act with virtue and injustice and yeah fuck no <laughs> now marines are notorious for stealing shit right right yeah <laughs> that's they, kind of our our standard operating procedure requisitioning tactical yeah. requisitioning they call it or whatever exactly <laughs> um you mentioned the the friends or acquaintances you lost in flight at incidents um i i knew a fellow not very close who um committed suicide and i don't know if you experienced that or or knew of it at least. What would what would you say is a difference in impact on you when it's somebody who maybe even through faulty equipment, um, kind of an accident, but um, you could, you could blame it on command or something. There's kind of a different responsibility structure, and then somebody who, for whatever reason, um, takes their own life. Yeah. So I don't it, have I don't have any friends that committed suicide from the military. Mm-hmm. I have a couple that happened from the civilian world. Okay. Um, I worked in the bars a little bit when I was in college and that's sure. an environment that, you yep. know, a lot of drugs and a lot of lifestyle. that's not really conducive to good health and, mm-hmm. and habits. Um, but yeah, I've, I've, it's a good question. I've never really thought about the difference in how those things affected me. I think you're totally right that you want to have something or someone to blame. Mm-hmm. And it was really easy for me to blame the system that we were within when friends are dying sure, from sure. aviation mishaps. Um, but yeah, man, suicide is a whole nother gnarly animal. Even if it's someone you haven't talked to in years, you still, you take on some of that responsibility mm-hmm. when that happens. Um, cause you, you're always going to think like, could I have done more? Like, could I have called them more regularly? Could I have? Sure. There's yeah. always that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't really know where else to go from there. It's Yeah, I didn't mean to spring that on you, but No, yeah, it's it's a but, good question though. It's Yeah, the the friend of mine, like I say, I didn't know him that well. Um kind of a more passing passing acquaintance. But even now like I see a picture of him and it just it hits me. You know, it's like wow. Yeah, he he was in the military too, so I think for a little while it was kind of talked about a lot the whole 22 a day and everything and all that. Mm-hmm. But I think the military is kind of in my experience, at least has kind of stepped away from talking about that. It's not a, not an easy, it's a, it's a hard sell. If you're the military and you have a higher suicide rate, it's hard to justify that. I think. Yeah. I think it was a, I mean, we can get into the reason behind why it was happening, but a lot of it is a combination in my opinion, a combination of, you know, there's the PTSD side of things where you actually went through a lot of shit overseas sure, sure. that affected you emotionally and you just you weren't you didn't get the help that you needed 
um, or, and or, um, there's the, the inability um, to transition into civilian society efficiently mm-hmm. or effectively. And that, I, I took that upon myself for a long time after I got out for a couple of years. I would have, you know, one or two phone calls a week with veterans that were transitioning out to try to help them because I feel like I transitioned pretty effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent about a year on my transition from when I knew I was getting out to actually, you know, getting out and okay. getting a good job. And yeah. that was kind of my, my side mission for a while was to, to try to help other military members who were getting out. Because if you don't have that, if you don't have some kind of a purpose, mm-hmm. if you don't have, yeah. you know, you don't get into a career that you enjoy, or if you feel like you're trapped, or if you're not productive anymore, especially coming from some kind of hyperproductive military environment, you're going to lose a lot of your perceived purpose of living, you know, and mm-hmm. that's not going to sure. end well to the suicide problem. So, yeah. Yeah, I did that for a while, and now there's there's so many nonprofits out there to to help veterans transition. Now it's mm-hmm. a, it's I kind of got the feeling like okay, well, what kind of difference am I really making? I still help whoever I can. Sure, you know, if someone gets referred or whatever, but yeah, yeah. I, I listened to a podcast called Biting the Bullet, which is some a few two or well, it used to be three, but <clears throat> two Marines, former Marines, as yourself. Yeah, it's and, a great uh, podcast. Yeah. And and that is one thing they talk about often is how um, their support group when they got out really helped them tr- with that transition. I that's not something I really thought about as a civilian. Um, getting out, you have that whole structure. You have like your whole day is planned out. Um, everything you do, even a- after work, often your your life is driven by work requirements. Yep. Yeah, or and you're then, you're just going right to hanging out with those guys that you were working with all day. You know, you like sure. you're with the same people, regardless yeah. of whether or yep. not you're deployed. You know, they tend to be your that's your prescribed friend group. You right, know? right. And so. then to and then to leave that and just be be hit with this op- with this liberty, I guess, so to speak. Yeah, and lack of direction potentially can be really difficult. It's also the fact that the military really does kind of coddle you when you're in. In the sense that, like you said, yes, your day is prescribed. Like you, you have, you know where you need to be all day, every day. All the decisions are being made for you. Mm-hmm. Sure, you have to make decisions at work or whatever. But even things like fucking healthcare. Yeah. I didn't know the first thing about a healthcare plan. Like trying to choose a healthcare plan for the first time was like, what the fuck is? This? I have Tricare. Right. I don't know what any of this is. Right, that's taken care of for you. Like when you deploy, a lot of the admin side. Like we have entire support units that are admin units that take care of this shit. So that our guys can focus on war fighting or on supporting war fighters. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so once you get into the the real world, a lot of the stuff that was just kind of taken care of for you because you had your mission, now that's gone, and you're you're trying to find a new job, you're trying to find a new circle of friends potentially, or a new support group. Sure. You're trying to figure out all the admin of just being an adult that you essentially deferred for right. four to twenty years. You know, it it can be a lot. It can be very overwhelming. Um, hmm. And if, like you said, if you don't have that good support group in place, there can be pretty devastating consequences if you're trying to tackle all that alone. So, hmm. yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I admire that effort that you're saying you make to, to reach out because with that, you having experienced it, whatever, even if it's only one person, whatever you can do to, to remove some of those barriers or smooth smooth out some of those transitions. 
I think that's I think that's admirable. Yeah, I fell off a little bit. I think I got a little jaded with. Um, I focused a lot on veterans who wanted to get into sales because that was my mm, sure vocation, a logical so to speak for transition. a few years, um, and that was that was what I did. Um, and you know, sales is one of those things where you don't go to college for it. So mm. if you have a, a military background, maybe you have a little bit of civilian work experience before or after. Like pretty much anyone can make really really good money in especially software sales. So if a veteran came to me and said, or a, a military member came to me and said they wanted to get into that, like, how do I go about doing that? I was all up, all about helping them. Sure, sure. Um, to the point of where me and a couple of civilian friends put together like a, a transitioning to sales, mm. like not boot camp, but just some videos and, and shit. And he used the some software that probably. him and his other, I think, co-founder had created for another business. Mm-hmm. Um, and we put that out there and then his his partner got upset that they had, basically used the same shit and they made him take it down. Sure. sure. There was a whole process where I got a little jaded. It's like, man, I'm just trying to help and everybody's trying to make it so difficult. You know, I'm not making any money. Yeah. Yeah. But this is adding more stress to my life. And then I just kind of, yeah, started taking one-on-one phone calls and then fell off a little bit because I was very unhappy in my corporate sales life. Once the novelty wore off, Mm, once you get up to the higher, like enterprise sales level type shit. Yep. And you're dealing with multi-million dollar quotas. There is a ton of pressure because you're making a lot of money. And if you yeah. don't perform, you can get axed. You know, right. like if you don't perform for one fiscal year, you lose your job, kind of thing. So I think I developed some some mild anxiety over the last three years. I was able to defer a lot of that shit from the military. You know, stuff that was bothering sure. me. You just push it down, push it down. Sure. Until last this year, actually, it just kind of culminated and. I was like, you know what? I've been doing well enough with investments and I'm making enough money from cash flow from the side that I don't need this fucking job. And it's 98% of my daily stress. Yeah. So yeah. I quit two months ago and haven't looked back. Yeah. Really enjoying life right now. Yeah. While I can. <laughs> hmm. So a lot of, yeah, another segue, but. Sure. Actually sure. starting a, a land survey services business with our mutual friend Theo later this year. Sure. So that's the uh, the next business venture. Yeah. Cool. Should be a good time. Yeah. Get the hell out of corporate America and, you know, work for yourself kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Um, more individual responsibility. Mm -hmm. Not that the military, uh, doesn't allow for that. I think it probably breeds it to a certain extent, but, um, I, I've been struck by the importance of individual responsibility. Anytime you, you, um, group something or or assign something to a group not always but often it's it's just an an effort to avoid personal responsibility or individual responsibility so to jump out like that yeah totally agree step out from under the corporate umbrella yeah take some risk yeah man it's like get some rewards if i'm going to be killing myself or working my my fingers down to the bone for something I want to be doing it for my own business, for my own life. I want to own the equity, mm-hmm. you know, and I know I can do that because I own equity and other investments and they, sure. that works out extremely well, much more so than, okay, go to your nine to five that you hate, probably work more than nine to five, funnel money into a 401k you have no control over and hopefully retire in 30 years. Mm-hmm. Hopefully. Right. It doesn't work out for a lot of people. Yeah. And they sort of hate their lives in the meantime, if they didn't choose the right career path and, then sure. if, and they feel trapped and yeah, I was, I would, I didn't, I was already three years into corporate sales and 
I you knew then. I knew very easily. Yeah. I could just give myself over to it completely and have a not probably not ideal marriage, not be the kind of father I wanted to be. Um, we're expecting now mm-hmm. we've had about a year of fighting through infertility and all that. And now we're, we're finally solidly pregnant and overjoyed about that. But that, sure. yeah. that had part of, part of the influence for me, like getting out of corporate America was I want to be around for my kids, which just isn't, isn't a realistic expectation in today's modern society. Sure. You know, the man goes to work and puts bread on the table. Women do it now too. So now our kids are being raised by fucking nannies or daycares right. or whatever. Right. Um, and I didn't want that life. I wanted to homeschool our kids. I wanted to be present. I wanted to have fun. I wanted to help them learn. I wanted to, you know, hmm. help them explore the world yeah. and just be yeah. there for them and have a hand in, in how our kids are raised. Sure. You know, I don't want to leave that all in my wife. So getting out of corporate America and kind of doing my own thing was, was step one right. in, in sort of going down that path. Yeah. So. Ideal world, yeah. Theo and I can set up a homestead and homeschool our kids together, and sure, yeah, yeah, have some arranged marriages or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, so your your older brother you mentioned joined. Did any of that, your other brothers um, join any branch? Older brother was enlisted Marine, and then I did Marine officer, and then the twins are a year younger than me. One of them's a doctor, and one of them's a Catholic priest. Oh, okay. Um, and then the youngest was Air Force. Okay. But now he's so he took the wise route. He did, yeah. Actually, he was a uh, crew chief for F-16s. Oh, okay. Awesome. Um, and he's now a CEO at a startup in Madison, Wisconsin. Hmm. So he's doing well. They've all got kids, minus the priest, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But, Does that make for lively family reunions with the, the two different branches? Um, or is it more yeah, of mutual I mean, respect? I think there was a lot of shit talking earlier on. Sure. And now we've just kind of delved into You're adults. Or we've settled into... Yeah, just talking shit about everything. Yeah. It's it's what five boys do when you get together. Yeah. Yeah. But Yeah, well that that's I appreciate that. That really um I think that adds adds a lot to the picture of different experiences. Um I don't know how if I'll get any uh super high ranking, but we'll see. Probably not. <laughs> but but yeah, to hear to hear the officer side of things, especially what <clears throat> what really means the most or speaks to me the most is that relationship interplay between officer and enlisted um, and the, the struggle, but yet support at the same time. It's a fun dynamic, man. Yeah. I had a, I had a lot of fun with it. Um, had a lot of really great relationships with some of my guys and others, you know, there's very awkward situations where if there's especially senior enlisted, you know, if there's a staff sergeant or something who's, not performing up to snuff mm. and you're a second lieutenant trying sure. to write what's called a fit rep, you know, fitness report where you're doing, you know, quarterly and annual evaluations Yep, and you're, yep. you're scoring them next to all the other staff sergeants that are in the squadron. And he's got years and years on dude, you, but you've yeah. got those butter bars. Some guy that's been in 15 years and you're yeah. trying to tell him how to like do better. And you're barely fucking, dude, I was such a, I was a child, man. Yeah. You almost don't need to shave every morning. <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 So that was, that was an interesting dynamic to play with. Um, but it forces you to grow up and mature very, very quickly. Hmm. You know, from, sure. even from early college, it's just a bunch of captains and, and, you know, enlisted, senior enlisted instructors that are telling mm-hmm. you like, look, if you make the wrong decision, people are going to die and making it very real for you. Sure. 
Sure. So that sort of forces you to grow up so that when you do get to the fleet and you have to make those decisions, you can, you can justify your decisions easily because you've put a lot of thought, a lot of preparation, mm-hmm. um, a lot of sort of, um, I don't even know the right word because you don't have wisdom at that point. You're in your mid twenties for God's right, sake. Right, you're an idiot. Right. Um, but you do what needs to be done because you understand why it needs to be done. Right. And then you just, yeah, you grow up a lot faster. Thank you for listening to this episode of How I Embraced the South. If you enjoyed the show, tell a friend. And as my Girl Scout den mother used to say, stay frosty. talk shit about the warthog this time.